what I do think is interesting is social media, technology, gaming, any anything that can be uh, used to escape. Remember, it's not an escape, but it can be used to escape. Is um, is detrimental at the teen years when your brain is still being formed. Welcome to Candid Insights. I'm your host, Sahil Badruddin. And today we have with us Shama Heather, CEO of Zen Media, a global marketing and new media communications firm, enlisted by Forbes and Inc. Magazine as a 30 under 30 entrepreneur. Shama, I'm so happy to have you with us. Thanks for having me, Sahil. Pleasure to be here. Shama, I think I now know what I want to be when I grow up. <laughs> uh, it's it's funny that I say that. I actually also went to the University of Texas, Austin. Oh, you did? You're an alum. Okay. Yeah, so hook em horns. And you're the first UT Austin grad we have. I'm happy to represent and be doing this with a fellow Longhorn. Let's talk, let's talk about your story. You wrote your graduate thesis on Twitter when it had about 2,000 users it was the early days of social media and digital marketing, and there were no jobs in the industry, as you say. So you started your own company, Zen Media, uh, and then eventually wrote a whole book on the Zen of social media marketing, which is now used by college campuses and universities uh, around the world. I want to talk about your inspiration behind your work and how, what kind of impact do you want to make? Yeah, that's, that's a big question. <laughs> <laughs> Give me the Twitter size story. It's interesting because what you're asking is a past slash future question, uh, the way I I, um, yes. I perceive it, which is inspiration is the past, right? Like how do you how do you get inspired to start and be where you are? And then the I think the latter part, the impact is the legacy question, which is the future. Yep. And so um, that's something I find myself thinking a lot about in equal measures, oddly enough. And I think in terms of inspiration, it's been more for me, you know, um, a um, an amalgamation of passion, right? So I always loved technology, um, found a passion for communication through school. And I think for me, it's been very much following that thread at the same time, more about also bucking sort of conventional wisdom, which says, you know, go to school, get a job. Um, not that I wasn't willing to embrace that. It just, you know, I started the company during uh, the the Great Recession. And so it, for me, it was more a matter of being true to the things that I enjoyed. And, you know, at the same time, making sure there was a, a market demand for it. So I think that's that's the inspiration part of it, to be, to be very uh, candid, was a multitude of passions and then also realizing, you know, where, where's market demand? And uh, for me, it showed up. So I, I never discount the power of right time, right place. I think there's a lot to be said about that. And then in terms of impact, I think about that daily because, you know, it's very, um, it's very easy to get lost in the big impact. Like, what's the big legacy? Where I think so much of that impact, um, and you know, right now we, we're in interesting times in the sense that you know a lot of us are are losing people who were close to or know or have you know, we're just dealing with loss in general, right? Mm -hmm. um, I, right. Uh, 
last you know few months alone I, I've lost um, some folks close to me and I think it makes you realize that the impact people have is not the the macro impact but the micro impact the way you make someone feel the the little interactions the um, you know the things that you say to your partner to the people closest to you, you know, do you make that phone call to your mom or not so I think it's I think it's the, I think about my impact now less in the macro term, which I feel like if I keep doing all the micro things, it'll add up in the right way and really focusing on the micro things, you know, how do I show up as my best self in, in every moment, moment to moment in every interaction. Mm, I love that. I think I read something recently where it says the way you make people feel in your interactions becomes your trademark. And I found that really powerful. I think that's very, I think that's very astute. I want to talk about the lessons you've shared to others that you would give to them in their 20s. So you've told them to think bigger, right? Yes. <laughs> be, you know, be more assertive, think bigger. Uh, you've said that it's only lonely at the top if it's lonely at the bottom. If you are good at building your relationships and maintaining your relationships, and keeping them, then it won't really be lonely at the top. Uh, fear is a killer and really getting past what people think about you um, and realizing when to take action and not to take action. Uh, fourth thing you've said is that real confidence is not, you know, faking it till you're making it. It's actually something you earn over time. Something I almost call about earning your own self-respect and kind of practicing and overcoming these obstacles and challenges is one way that you kind of build that. And the fifth thing you said is just because, and this goes to relationships again, is just because you understand what's wrong with something doesn't mean the opposite of that is right. Uh, and to kind of manage those relationships effectively. Correct. My question here is really within the framework of thinking about these different things, how do you, how can you actively implement them, you know, consciously in your day-to-day -day lives? Uh, in the in the micro interactions almost that you mentioned. Yeah, so I think it's very connected, right? Because the lessons I've shared, and if you keep that in the back of your mind, I think in your micro moments, you have those, um, you have the ability to sort of reach into that bag, right, of the reservoir and say, this is, I think part of that is recognizing that this is a moment. And so, uh, you know, it's, um, the the fear thing is funny and the confidence thing it goes together I get people who message me and say you know you do a lot of keynotes in public speaking have you ever been nervous on stage you know what and the answer is yeah absolutely you know of course i was nervous on stage but it's one of those things in that moment where you say am i gonna let fear hold me back or am i gonna do this right am i gonna worry about when this is and then when you finish it i think at that finish line is where you feel like hey i earn my self-respect i do feel better about my speaking skills now right so you hone that craft over time okay. so, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know I, i'm a paid keynote speaker now but when i started i wasn't i was doing it you know to, to hone my skills to get better to share value uh, but i think you start where you start and so i think in those moments is where you can really look into something and say you know um, and I think sometimes it's just a self-talk where we say, oh, man, I should feel more confident. Well, should you? Because you don't, you know, it's part of it is that acceptance and saying, OK, I don't feel that way right now. So what needs to change? And uh, going through those things is, is what is what helps us change. You know, one of the lessons that I that I touched on sort of briefly, but I didn't deep dive um, Sahil that I 
Um, then I might, maybe I'll do another video or something on it and, and talk about it more. But you know, I often talk about you know making your first million, right, or becoming a millionaire. It seems to be this goal that people hold on to. And I can tell you, you know, when, when I made my first million, when I crossed that tr threshold, you, it's you're still this. It, it's funny because it's it's not that having it that makes a difference. It's who you become in the process. It's saying it's learning how to build that confidence. It's facing your fears. It's um, you know, it's figuring out, hey, what's the opposite of, <laughs> you know, it's not just the opposite of what I need to do, but what do I need to do in this situation? And so I, I, it's funny because I think when we set goals for ourselves, even when it's something like maybe I need to graduate from college or I need to do this, whatever it is, it's not even the accomplishing of it. It really is who you become in that process while you accomplish that goal. Two things. I think one is I always believe that money or fame or any of these things don't really, it, it, they build character, I think. But, and I think they reveal kind of who you are in some sense too. And so I don't think they necessarily, you know, I think it's that process that you mentioned of what kind of person you become from those things, from fame or from money or from anything, right? I think that's what defines you. And I think I would agree with you there. The second thing I would say is if I kind of look at the five things that we've talked about, the underlying thing I almost see is self-doubt, right? How do you really get past self-doubt about thinking bigger, about, you know, building your relationships better is, are there tips you found, whether it be in keynote speaking, anything to kind of get past that self-doubt? Because you speak a lot about uh, betting on yourself and the right mindset and the right framework of thinking. Yeah. So I think it's interesting. I think one of the things that really helps me and uh, can help others as well is surrounding yourself with people who also inspire you, right? Mm. And even that can be in sort of your close circle and then a wider circle. I'm very lucky that I have uh, friends and family and, and you know, a community of people, a close community, who um, always encouraged and believed and, you know, didn't belittle, didn't, in fact, were were the staunchest allies. And so I think in those moments where you're like, oh, can I, you know, if you think about any movie or show, right? The protagonist has moments of self-doubt and it really is that sort of community of friends and people saying, no, you've got this. We believe in you that I think makes makes a difference. Now, sometimes you don't have that. And and I do think that's unfortunate, but that's life. And, and that's also helping us grow. And, you know, I think part of it is being able to select your friends and, and sort of grow and have people who believe in you. Um, and I think if you ever do run into people who believe in you, you should consider yourself very lucky because that is, it's not something everyone gets. Um, but then I think, you know, it's so easy to turn and, and look at the greater world. And it's one of the reasons I enjoy reading uh, biographies. You know, it's something, it's funny because it's more recent, like, I think in the last few years, I started picking up more biographies and enjoying them. But I think you really start looking and, and learning and you're like, wow, look at all these people, you know, historical figures who've been through all of this. And um, and uh, and I think you can derive inspiration from that. I think you can see that, you know, um, JFK had doubts and Roosevelt had doubts and, um, you know, um, all the Stoics had doubts. The, no one has a no one who's accomplished the great things that history remembers 
came through unscathed, came through <laughs> without a without without a doubt, right? Um, but I think it's again that process of being able to work through it. You know, do you stay there? Do you wallow in it? Do you let it control you, or do you find ways to break through? And I think at the end of the day, that's so much of what life and business is: is do you stay where you are, or do you find a way to break through that plateau? Shama, I think that's really astute. I think, yeah, I think having the right people who build your confidence and are there to inspire potential when you're doubting your potential, I think does. I think that's a very practical way of kind of thinking about how to break out of some of these fears and confidence, kind of nervousness, etc. I want to talk about innovation and innovating. Um, there's a I think one of the things you mentioned is during a crisis is a time that you see a lot of innovation happening. And I'm always of the belief that, you know, you should continuously be out innovating yourself because if you're not, someone else is really doing it. What other uh, criteria or tips do you have on just a mindset of innovation that people often miss? Well, it's funny because Kyle, I think a lot of that comes from also being able to fight off fear, right? Because with fear, it keeps you from innovating. It says, oh my God, what if I try something new and it fails? Because in innovate, you know, the word is new. You're doing something different. So that fear, of course, is, is ever present. And so I think part of it is also, and this is why I think, you know, if we step back and say, okay, let's talk about organizations for a second. Organizations that have a um, a solid culture are often organizations that do not punish people for making mistakes or where people feel comfortable in making the in making mistakes. So you can think about an organization anyway, even a family, a family where a child feels like I can make mistakes in a safe environment, right? It's very different than a child who feels like anything they do wrong could be punished severely. Um, and that through life is either validated for us or at some point something happens where you realize, wow, that's not how the world works. And so that's why I think even as organizations, organizations that have a culture of innovation are the ones where the, it's not scary, you know, experimentation is okay. It's welcomed. And so I think you also have to have that mindset. You have to be on the lookout for new ideas. The most innovative people I know all carry notebooks or have, a, you know, a cornucopia of notes on their phone where they write down all their ideas and they have all their... <laughs> so people who are, like, it's, it's about developing that lens that is on the, you know, it's very easy if you get up every day and you just do the same thing over and over. Like, you can live Groundhog's Day, but... The moment you say, hey, I'm going to look for something different, I'm going to look, when you start asking those questions, right, when you start looking, I think you start finding. Did you ever feel that as you were going through your journey, I'm sure, did you feel the imposter syndrome after getting opportunities that you felt that you, you got them, but perhaps you weren't skilled enough or talented enough? And then how did you overcome them? And what advice would you give to others to overcome them? 
You know, I think that something, it's so funny because um, I I shared something on social media the other day and I, and I said, you know, I, it's funny that real imposters rarely suffer from imposter syndrome. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It's so I think, if, I think I, most people, most credible people from uh, and people, well-known people from Oprah to you know to Bill Gates, I think all have moments of who am I to have this? What you know, like, and this is where what I mean by I think you know for me to answer your question more directly, of course, and I still have those moments where I think you know why me, right? Like, oh, like is this you know wow they could have you know they could have invited anyone. Oh, this company could have worked with anyone. And then I think part of that is also, again, recognition and say, well, why not me, right? Well, they could have, but man, aren't, aren't we sort of the best at what we do? And the answer is, you know, yes. And it is hard because I think especially when you're raised in a way, and I think this is a, a good way, it's not necessarily negative, but I think when you're raised in a way, in a family or community where humility is valued, I think you have to learn to walk that line between what is humility and what is arrogance and what is being confident, right? And so I think those things are not separate. I think the more confident you are, in fact, the more humility you have. Um, and so, yeah, I think there's definitely moments where I'm like, wow, you know, I, I, I that feeling of like, oh man, like how, how is this possible? Or how did I end up with this? You know, how am I on stage next to so-and-so? And, um, uh, so I, I, I think everyone that I know, you know, who I look up to has, has moments of that and feels it. But again, I, I think it's not a matter of do you feel it or not? Because if you didn't, then I'm not sure that that's, you know, I think to feel it as human, it's what you do with that feeling, right? Do I stay there? Do I, because you know, feelings in many ways or thoughts are like clouds. They come and go until you hang on to one, right? So if I hang out onto it and say, oh, no, and I let it amplify and it grows and grows and now it stops me from writing my next book or delivering the best keynote that I can or you know, showing up for a client the way I should, these are the things that really hold us back. And so I think all these feelings, all these thoughts are normal, natural. It's just how much weight do you give them? Do you treat it like air, right? Do you treat it as it comes and goes? Or do you hang on to it and, and really start investing in it? Agreed. So that's fascinating because I often say that like when we're in the moment, I don't think anybody purposely says, you know, I am going to do this the wrong way or I'm going to make this mistake or something along the lines. But I guess like suppose you're giving a keynote and you come out of it and said, you know, maybe I should have said this differently. How do you do you just not sweat the small stuff and you kind of just keep moving forward? How do you kind of deal with moments of where, you know, you should have done things differently kind of mentality? I think part of it is how many moments do you create where that, you know, if I make one mistake, but I've taken, you know, a hundred chances, hey, 99 out of a hundred is a pretty good score. I'm good with that, right? Mm. But if that's the only thing I've done and that's the only thing that I feel insecure about, well, yeah, of course, that's going to seem like a lot because the ratio, right? It's a ratio thing. And so I think that's why you know, people sweat the small stuff. And it's funny because you know, the, the book goes, you know, when it's all small stuff, it is when you have a lot going on, right? Right. So 
you know, like if you're in sales and, you know, one person says no and it's like, oh man, they said no. But if you made a hundred calls and 10 people said no, who cares? 90 people said yes. And I think we tend to hold on to the mistake of their negative parts and not really do the overall perspective of our of everything going on. Yes, that's true. And I think this is, again, you know, where that community comes in, right? Whether it's your your community or what I'll refer to as sort of your imaginary posse of people that are alive, right? Yeah. Where you, where, you know, everyone's felt this way. I think one of the saddest things and the things that makes humanity feel so lonely is that we think we're the only ones. And I think that's why it's so freeing where, where someone says something and you're like, oh, you feel that way too? And it's like, everybody feels this way, you know? It's like, that's happened to you too? <laughs> and so, but I, I think all these things are so interesting because they're universal, yet they are so singularly and deeply felt, right? Like grief, falling in love, the, all these right. emotions that we have and experience, they are very personal, but they're also very universal. And I think it's easy to get lost in the personal, but it helps when you step back and, and start to see it as universal. So in those moments where you've had major personal losses, you mentioned a couple earlier, and maybe perhaps when you had your first one, how did you kind of get get through it? I think everyone has to go through the grieving process. Everyone has to go through those, those things. Uh, what, what advice would you give to your former self? Oh, boy. Um, so... You know, I hope yeah, if, if it's too personal, I don't want to intrude. No, it's totally fine. No, I'm, I'm happy to. You know, I think, again, this is one of the things we all go through losses. We all go through, um, you know, periods in our life where things are hard. The thing is, and this is the other thing I'll just share, is people don't publicize that. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, it's, um, it's really funny because I posted something on social uh, a while back and and someone commented and said, oh, my God, you have, like, the dream life. You know, it's so, I, this is so cool. And I, you know, I, I wish I had these things. Mm. And, uh, you know, it really prompted me to respond and say, listen, but here's all the stuff that happened the last few years that I don't talk about. Because it's not something you necessarily post on social media, right? Mm-hmm. We share our wins. We don't always share our losses. We don't always share our um you know our heartbreaks and and so forth for a multitude of reasons right and and this person was like oh my god i would have never known and i'm like yeah but that's not just me that's true for every single person where we've all been through things that are difficult and challenging um you know and so i'd say advice if i could go back to myself and and funnily i i ask myself this often like what would i do differently i think part of it is you know one and this is something i can say i'm proud of is always take the high road I, I don't think you ever regret looking back and saying, man, I did the right thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because you can't control the result. You can't control the outcome, but you can control. Right. You know, how you show up with people, how you, how you act. Like, do you, do you take the high road? And, and I think that's such an important, you know, um, I think one of the best pieces of advice I ever got was be grateful for your highs and graceful in your lows. Mm-hmm. And, so I think about what grace in those lows means. And I think part of it is taking the high road. Another part of it is, you know, um, don't make changes while the ground is shaky. Hmm. I think this is I love it. thing. I think so many times people, 
know, will rebound into relationships or buy things or do things that are just, you know, whether it's something small as like a completely different hairstyle or something major as like moving life change. I think it's very important because what we what we want is a sense of control back. So we'll start to do anything to have that sense of control back. Mm. And allowing for a loss of control and finding your peace with that, which is very hard. I'm not saying it's easy. Um, but I think it helps to not make big changes. I think it helps to slow down and reassess. Um, I think it really helps to know that you will not always feel that way. And that's very difficult when you're in that moment because for anyone who's known loss knows that one of the most challenging feelings is you feel like, will I feel this way forever? Mm -hmm. And I think knowing that, you know, no, you won't feel this way forever. Right. It's, um, it's, you you will things will look up again and that you know one of the bi- biographies i really enjoy is i i love reading about churchill winston churchill because yes. i find him to be a fascinating man and you know there's a point in his life where he's so happy he's like i've married the person in my dreams he has his child he's just been elected to office he's like top of the world <laughs> and then a few years later Right. Yeah. And then a few years later, he's his wife has died. One of his children has died. He's lost public office. And that continues for a few years. And you see him, you know, and World War Two hasn't occurred like the wars haven't come about yet. So it's just fascinating. And again, that's what I mean, like sometimes it's not in your personal world. But if you expand, you can see that, you know, every person of note has gone through periods of crisis of losses of opportunities of you know and so yeah i think it's i think it's completely fair to wallow and to feel bad just don't stay there know that things will get better i think that's the biggest thing and it's the hardest because when you are in that at that point you just cannot see how the sun could rise again how things could ever feel better you know mm-hmm. um because uh, yeah, I mean you're you're in it. You're going in it. You're going through it. Mm-hmm. And so, um, my best advice actually comes from a favorite country song, which says, "You know, when you're going through hell, just keep going. Mm-hmm. You might get out before the devil even knows you were there." <laughs> mm. Churchill's interesting. One of my favorite quotes by Churchill is, "You have enemies. This is good. It means you stood for something." Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know, and Churchill always stood for things and. Well, there's so much people don't know about him. He he was uh, an avid bricklayer. He loved laying bricks. Mm. And you're like <laughs> an amateur painter. He wasn't a very good artist, but he enjoyed it. I think you know, it shows the power of hobbies, the power of nature. It can be very restorative. And I want to shift our conversation to social media. And actually, this is something I I don't know if you've spoken about, but I would love to see the interesting some of the negative aspects of social media and how it does to the human psychology. So Sean Parker, the founding president of Facebook said all social media companies consciously, quote unquote, exploited a vulnerability in human psychology. He has also said, God only knows what it's doing to our children's brains. And you often see that top Silicon tech executives like Bill Gates or others, you know, were part of the technology kind of innovation. Uh, and these, this is Steve Jobs, Bill Gates actually kept their smartphones and other things from their children until they were, you know, teenagers. How do you think we balance this idea that 
social media can be addictive and can have a negative impact on our brains and especially child psychology to using the tool as a positive because it's a tool, right? It's how you use it. And like anything else, it's how you use it that makes a difference. Yeah, so I think it's interesting. It, it is that, and I think age does play a role. And so, you know, I have a nine-month-old son. I do not hand him my phone. I, he tries to go for it multiple times. <laughs> and I just don't. We just don't hand him our phones as a way to distract him. Mm. And that's the choice we make. It is, it is hard because, you know, it's, it's so easy to give them something, especially when they're crying or they, you know, that may need that distraction. What I do think is interesting is social media, technology, gaming, any, anything that can be uh, used to escape, remember, it's not an escape, but it can be used to escape, is, um, is detrimental at the teen years when your brain is still being formed. And here's, here's what I mean by that. One of the, my goals as a parent, and, and just what I see, I want to make sure that my son has good coping mechanisms. And I think this is true for adults too. It's not a matter of, you know, what what do you have that, you know, how do you balance your time and stuff? I think all that comes later. But what you'll find is even addiction, for example, of any kind, if you start it in your teens, if you start when you're 15, 16, 17, 18, the chances of that becoming your crutch and you not knowing how to cope when life gets tough and turning to those is extremely high compared to, let's say, you picked up you know, drinking later in life after you were 21, or you picked up smoking, if you pick up bad habits later in life, they, they are not so um, hard written in your psyche. And this is, again, I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a psychiatrist. This is my observation. This is how I, I view the world. Um, I find that in personal experience, I've lost, I've lost very good close friends um, to addiction uh, because, you know, just, and I, this was just observation of starting at a young age. And so I think what's really important is not, you know, how much time do you spend with technology or social media? It's when things get tough, when you are bored, when you are going through a hard time, when you are depressed, when you are feeling down, any, let an array of negative, what we would color, call negative emotions, what is your go-to? And we see it now. Look at adults. When they're bored, what do you see people doing? Scrolling mindlessly through TikTok or Instagram, right? So that has become a coping mechanism. What you have to do is find coping mechanisms that are healthy, that are not scrolling through social media. So sometimes that, you know, that maybe that looks like fitness. That looks like going to the gym for some people. It looks like working out. For other people, it looks like getting lost in a book. Um, you know, for me, I find nothing is more restorative than playing with um, my dogs and having a cup of chai. Like nothing makes me happier in life than those two things. <laughs> <laughs> That's like a combination. There's just something really sweet about that. Yeah. Really sweet. Um, you know, um, and I, I'm a big dog lover. I, it's funny because I, I, one of the myths that was shared with me when I uh, was pregnant with our son was people said, oh, just you wait. When you have your child, your dog becomes just your dog. And uh, I would just like to say, you are liars. <laughs> I love my dog just as much. And I've often joked, you know, that uh, someone said, well, what if they don't get along? I said, well, I'm going to have to find the baby another home because, you know. <laughs> um, but it, it's true. I think there's so much you can learn 
from animals, from, from babies, from nature, you know, and, and I think so part to answer your question, it's not technology that's bad. It's not social media. It's not needing a digital detox or this, you, someone might, I think it's much more about asking yourself, how do you cope? And in that way, we see an array of things, people who are, you know, uh, who like to shop their emotions, you know, when they're upset, who overeat. I mean, these are all coping mechanisms. And I think finding ways to healthy coping me mechanisms is key for children and adults. I believe there are young people in the South Asian and Muslim community who look up to you as a role model. Do you, do you have a message to share with them? Yeah. I... <laughs> Um, so, and I, I do get so many emails and messages and things like that. And so I, I'll say a couple of things if that's okay with you, Sahil. Um, sure. one, appreciate your family and be so grateful to your parents because, you know, regardless of the mistakes they, they made, and let's face it, anybody who's a parent will tell you that you make mistakes on the daily. They do mm -hmm. the best they can. Right. I've never met a parent who didn't love their child. Even the worst parents you might consider didn't come from mm -hmm. it from a place, you know, came from it from a misguided place, perhaps. But there's never been a lack of love. And I think being grateful for your family, being there for your family. And I, I think what I love about our culture, about the South Asian culture, is that family does take play a, play a, a role front and center, you know, in our lives. But I think it's very easy sometimes to look at your parents and say, oh, these are all the things you could have done better or whatnot. But I think it's just as easy to take responsibility for your own life and say, I'm so grateful for everything my parents have done. I love my parents. Um, and finding your own way. I think this is, you know, because what parents want for children because they love them is often safety. They want you to be safe. Right. Because it's safe. It's safe. It's inherently what a parent, I think you have a child now. I think what you want is for, for him to be safe. And, and yet I have to override my instinct as he stumbles to say, this is how he has to learn to stand and, and walk, right? Because if I keep picking him up every time he falls, he never learns to get up. And as a parent, that's your instinct. Um, I think this is where it comes to play. Because I get a lot from people who say, oh, my, my parents didn't let me, you know, they wanted me to do this. So I chose this career. I don't love it. Or they really want me to do this, but I don't want to do this. And I think this is where you have to forge your own path. Um, I was very lucky, very blessed that my parents always valued my and my sister, our happiness over anything else that they believed. So whatever we wanted to do, they supported as long as they felt like we were going to be happy doing it. Um, it's not always true for every family. And I get that. So I think this is where it comes, where a child has to look and say, I love my parents, I appreciate them, and I'm going to forge my own path. It may not be the path they agree with. And I think this is where responsibility comes in because, you know, let's say you do fail, you don't turn to mom and dad and say, rescue me, right? You grow up. Part of growing up is making those mistakes and, and owning up to things and learning um, you know, and learning how to how to become an adult. And I think so often in South Asian cultures, we often feel very obligated, right? There's a big sense of obligation. And I would just like to tell any young people who do feel like, you know, um, who, uh, who follow me, who follow my story, 
you can be grateful, you can love something, and you do not have to feel obligated. I think, you know, if you need to hear it from me, you can take it from me. You, you're, you don't owe anybody in your life, you know. Um, you deserve to make the choices and learn from your mistakes and pick yourself up when you do. I think it's very important. Um, and you don't get to blame your parents for it. You don't even, you know, you, you even make your own mistakes. Don't beat yourself up for it. You keep growing and you keep moving forward. And I think that's so important. Because so many times I hear from young people who want to do something and they're just like, oh, but I don't know what my family will think. Well, if they're not paying your bills, <laughs> you know, if, if you are happy to eat ramen noodles and, and, and do it and you love it enough, go for it. Go for it. I think that's so important. Um, and so, yeah, I, I would say that that is, that is what I would say to, to young people, especially in the South Asian culture. Shema, this has been such a pleasure. Thanks for having me, Sahil. I've enjoyed our conversation. Thank you for listening to today's episode with Canada Insights. If you enjoyed it, don't forget to subscribe or follow us on social media for updates on future episodes. If you've already subscribed, please leave us a rating or review. It does help new people find the podcast. I'm Sahil Badruddin, your host. And for a transcript of this interview and others, visit my website at sahilbadruddin.com. Thank you.